Please join with me in prayer. Father, this passage is a mouthful. It is the gospel um, summarized in such a compact fashion. It truly is a saying that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Help me to preach this passage with clarity, with boldness, with freedom, and uh, with fullness. I ask in Jesus' name, Amen. I've asked Dale to change our last hymn um, following the sermon to Amazing Grace. I recently learned several modern versions of Amazing Grace have changed the first line which says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Apparently the phrase that saved a wretch like me is too self-loathing for many 21st century Christians. So that line has been changed to that saved and strengthened me, or that saved a soul like me, or um, also that saved and set me free. Uh, Several different edits to this uh, grand gospel-filled hymn. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, and in his own testimonies, he felt like he was a sinner so vile that he was unable to change his life or be redeemed without God's help. He saw himself as a wretch because he saw himself as a great sinner. Song composers who feel the need to change the lyrics of Amazing Grace apparently feel like they and the congregations who sing their new lyrics are not bad people, certainly not wretches. They have simply stumbled and need some encouragement to keep being nice and good people. But we are going to see as we examine our passage that downplaying our sinfulness or our wretchedness, will also downplay our view of God's grace. God's grace is amazing because it saves wretches like you and like me. You will remember that the issue Paul is addressing in chapter 1 is the presence of these false teachers in the Ephesian church who are drawing people in the congregation away from the gospel. They were getting them sidetracked by speculations regarding genealogies and getting them sidetracked uh, on bad teachings about the Ten Commandments. And we dealt with that last week and how even today many um, are teaching um, the Ten Commandments, which is good and... and um, And full of grace, but teaching them in a bad way. And teaching people that they could find um, and produce self-righteousness by obeying the Ten Commandments. So Paul was was, uh, eager to counter this bad teaching, but he did so in an unusual but brilliant way. 
The Apostle Paul had planted the Ephesian church. We saw two weeks ago that uh, he was there and had preached for over two years, nearly three years, every day in Ephesus. The congregation longed to see him again and would value him above any other teachers, especially these false teachers. So instead of writing a few lines of instruction about bad doc, or instruction about uh, doctrine, he placed himself in front of them as a living illustration. And so that's what he's doing here in uh, our passage. So he's saying in verses 12 and 13, he's saying, look at me. Christ has approved my ministry. He has judged me faithful and has appointed me to his service. And the congregation would have certainly agreed with that, that assertion. That's right, Paul. You led us to Christ. You built this church. Uh, you are certainly approved by God. Amen and amen. But then, Paul added in verse 13, that he had formerly been a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent in, uh, opponent. In other words, Paul was not like these false teachers were asking these people to be. Uh, Paul was not a self-made man who had any way made himself righteous or worthy to serve Christ by speculating on these genealogies or by relying on the Ten Commandments for his standing with God. Paul is saying here in verse 13 that he is the antithesis of worthiness before God. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was an insolent opponent. If you're a blasphemer, you're acting as an enemy of God. You're blaspheming God. If you're a persecutor, then you are acting as an enemy of the church. If you are an insolent opponent, then you are, an, you are acting as an enemy of everybody. The Greek word that is translated insolent opponent it's just one word. It's the word, and listen closely. I, I, I assume you'll hear the English word in this word. It's hubristain, from which we get the word hubris. In other words, Paul was acting as an enemy of all the people because before he became a Christian, he thought of himself as being above all people. In other words, he was an arrogant man. It might be helpful for us to pause our examination of this passage for a few moments and remember uh, what the Bible says about Paul's life prior to meeting Jesus Christ. Paul was also known as Saul before he became a Christian. He had a reputation of being one of the sharpest young Pharisees of his day. He was very zealous for the Jewish faith. And therefore, uh, he hated this new sect of Christians that were popping up all over the place. He wanted to protect Judaism by destroying Christianity. And so he was there present at Stephen's stoning. In fact, he was giving approval to Stephen's death. And then after that, he was the ringleader of a terrible persecution that followed. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, just a couple of verses after we hear about Stephen's death. 
it said that Saul, that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 says that Paul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Later in Paul's ministry, after he became a Christian, he had an opportunity to give his testimony before King Agrippa. And so in Acts chapter 26, we hear Paul saying to King Agrippa, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. It wasn't enough that he was a blasphemer. blasphemer. He was trying to get these poor Christians to blaspheme Christ as well. Paul, in other words, was a predator intent on exterminating every follower of Jesus Christ that he could find. He was chasing them all over the Middle East. He was a callous, self-righteous, and bigoted murderer. But instead of destroying Paul, God showed him mercy. Look at verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. One commentator said that by the grace of God, the fiend had become a friend of God. Why did Paul receive this mercy from God? Well, Paul gives a partial explanation when he says, In verse 13, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, what's he saying there? He's not saying that his ignorance and unbelief earned him mercy. Rather, he is letting us know just how self-deceived he really was. He was so lost, he didn't know he was lost. I'm sure you've met many people like that. So lost, they have no clue that they are lost. He thought he was actually serving God with his murderous hatred. Verse 15 makes it clear that Paul did not think his ignorance somehow made him worthy to receive mercy. So verse 15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. When Paul says he is the foremost of sinners, that is to say... He believed himself to be the chief of sinners or the worst of sinners. Was Paul really the worst sinner that ever lived? I doubt it. Many had lived before him who were more brutal in their murderous plans than Paul. Many were responsible for far more suffering than Paul. In fact, we could even point to Nero Caesar who was living at the time that Paul was living, who actually put Paul to death. Uh, We could point to him as one such example of someone who was a far greater sinner than Paul himself. 
And we could also, we also know that Paul um, had not investigated all the sinful and criminal records of all the inhabitants of the world for him to conclude that he was the worst ever. In fact, I agree with John Stott who says, when we are convicted by the sin, or when we are convicted by sin, of sin by the Holy Spirit, and immediate, the immediate result is that we give up all such comparisons of who is the worst sinner. Paul was so vividly aware of his own sins that he could not conceive that anybody could be worse. It's my experience that when someone is convinced of a particular sin or a pattern of sinfulness uh, in their life, and this sin or this pattern of sinfulness drives them to Christ for the first time, the sins that are weighing on them so heavily are pretty insignificant sins, comparatively speaking. Because the sins that drive them to Christ are the sins that lie close to the surface. They are sins that the person knows are wrong. And so the person flees to Jesus because carrying around the guilt of these sins that they know that are wrong um, is, is so heavy that they are eager to unload the guilt of their sin upon Jesus Christ. They feel, these sins feel to the person as if they are the greatest sins that anyone could have ever committed because of the, the load of sin that they've been carrying around uh, for so long. And when the burden is lifted, and is so lifted completely by Jesus Christ, that it feels like such a load has been lifted that they have just um, been forgiven of the greatest sins that anyone could ever be forgiven. Now, they've been forgiven of all their sins, their past sins, present sins, future sins, but they're really focused on those presenting sins that cause them to cry out to Christ in the first place. But the more significant sins, the more, the more damaging sins are those sins that lie so deeply in the person's heart that they don't even know that those sins are expressions of wickedness. These sins that I'm talking about that lie deeper in the heart are idols of the heart that the person pursues for their significance, for their self-worth, for their happiness. And so many Christians live their lives, sometimes for years, without actually realizing what some of their deeper sins really are. But once Christ begins to convict them of them, because he's been, Christ being the good shepherd, is pulling back the, the, the different layers of our life, the stinky layers like an onion, just pulling them off one by one, getting down to the, the heart um, of the matter for, for some of these sins that are so deep. But once he begins to convict us of them, these are the sins because of long practice, are very difficult and painful to part with. These are the sins that are so deeply rooted that they keep recurring 
And we're tempted to despair that they will never be removed from us this side of death. I believe that Paul adds this autobiographical note about how he felt about his sinfulness to help us with our own personal uh, confession to Christ. You know, it's one thing to say that Christ came here to save sinners. It's quite another thing to personalize it and profess that Christ came to save such a person as I am. Just thought of uh, Jim Eggert's uh, little talk. For those of you who have uh, come through the, the uh, new members class uh, while he's taught the uh, first two questions. It's one thing to uh, say, I drink too much. It's another thing to say, I am a drunkard. It's one thing to say, I sin. It's another thing to say, I am a sinner. And so Paul here is helping us personalize our confession by his own confession when he says, I am the foremost of sinners. You know, Jesus said, He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Do you believe that you are among those sinners that need saving? As I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon, many 21st century Christians do not believe that they are really that bad. And so they reject the idea that they are wretched. But listen to what Jesus says in Luke 18. He says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus comments. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Is this clear, what Jesus is saying? Those who are confident about their own righteousness are not justified. In other words, they are not saved. If you rest in your own righteousness, you are not saved. Genuine Christians are firmly convinced of the wretchedness of their sin. You know, if you were to read this parable uh, that from Luke 18 in the original Greek, you'd see that the tax collector did not call himself a sinner, as the translation has it. Rather, he calls himself the sinner. Philip Ryken at this point says that the tax collector was so painfully aware of his sin that, that, is, that it was as if he were the only sinner in the whole world. 
This is the experience of all who have come to Christ. Has anybody truly come to Christ who would say, God, I'm a sinner, I need your grace, but I'm not as bad as that other person? No. No one would say that. Now, all this talk about being the worst of sinners is not to discourage anyone from coming to Christ. Just the opposite. If anyone, I'm sorry, if such a one as, the, as Paul could receive mercy, so can you. Paul was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But Christ showed him mercy. This is to say, you cannot out the limits of Christ's mercy. Wherever you are, whatever condition you find yourself in, regardless of what you have done or are doing, Christ's grace is to meet you in your sins. Just this past week, um, a woman told me that she couldn't come to church because she gets drunk and smokes weed. And I told her, you don't need to clean up your life before you come to Christ. You come to Christ and He will begin to transform your life. And that's what happened to Paul. Look at verse 14. He says, First of all, he says he, he received mercy, verse 13, and he continues, verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. When we come to Christ, Christ's grace overflows into our life. In Christ, our life gushes with Christ's faith and love. Listen to, to John chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Jesus, uh, Paul, I'm mean, sorry, John wrote, From His fullness we have received, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace stacked upon grace is the picture here. And then it's stacked and stacked and stacked and stacked upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In Christ, you are not lacking for grace to live for God. You have a Niagara Falls of grace overflowing into your life every moment. Is your life overflowing with faith and love? If not, seek Him. Christ is is never not overflowing in His grace. He is a river of life in our souls. You know, the most difficult aspect of believing the gospel is that the message of the gospel is, too, is so wonderful that we struggle to believe it. You know, the truth that Christ paid for all our sins, all of them, past, present, future, is quite a truth to receive. Because we remain sinners. We still sin. And we sin in such ways that we begin to wonder, is God really willing to forgive me? Is He really able to forgive me? 
And so God tells us over and over again, things like He casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. He tells us He takes our sins and He throws them to the bottom of the ocean so that we can't see them anymore. And He tells us He can't see them anymore. He tells us He forgets our sins. He tells us He tosses our sins behind His back. So they are out of sight, out of mind. He tells us that He, he, he drops our sins on the ground and then grinds them underfoot. He uses all these images to help convince us that our sins are forgiven. He tells us in, in, in uh, Isaiah, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as wool. Over and over again, He tells us, your sins are forgiven. And we struggle to believe it. God has given us His righteousness. Not only has He forgiven us of our sins, He's given us His perfect, complete righteousness. He gives us Christ's righteousness. So that now, if you are in Christ, you are as righteous as Christ is because you have His righteousness. Your standing before God is sure and certain. Immovable. You have Christ's righteousness. Not only that, you have been adopted into His family. You are a child of God. In spite of your struggles. In spite of your sins. If you are in Christ, He has made His Holy Spirit. Um, or the Holy Spirit has made... Your heart, His home. If you are in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life now. Your life will never, ever, 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 ever end. Even your death is just a transition. The moment we close our eyes in death, we open them in God's presence. But we still struggle with sin. I want you to notice what Paul says here. And we're very close to ending. But I want you to notice what Paul says here in verse 15. Because it's very easy to overlook. He says, the, tr- the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, this is his way of saying, listen up. Of highlighting this next phrase. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. For a Christian, this should be one of the purpose statements that drives your life, that is the foundation for your life. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. You should live your life, therefore, tell sinners about Him who came to save them. But then, this last little phrase, of whom I am the foremost. He doesn't say um, that I was the foremost of sinners. He continues to identify himself. I am the worst of sinners. I am the foremost of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. Why would he continue to identify himself in the present when he was much more godly in his walk? than most Christians who have ever lived. And this is later in his life that he's saying this. 
He's grown in Christ. Well, here's what happens. This is the dynamic, I believe, that is happening in Paul's life. And I know happens in your life. I certainly know it happens in my life. A Christian loves Christ and wants to be like Him. And so as you grow toward Christ and you become more and more like Him, an awareness also grows of the ways that you are not like Him. You see your sin more clearly. You know, the more we allow Christ's light to shine into our lives, the more areas of our life that we're going to see that needs to be corrected, that is displeasing to Christ. I've got some quotes here. Robert Murray McShane, one of my, um, one of my all-time favorite preachers, my all-time favorite preacher, frankly, even above Spurgeon, He says, none but God knows what an abyss of corruption is in my heart. And he's writing this in the present. Or John Knox, the father of Presbyterianism. In youth, mid-age, and now after many battles, I find nothing in me but vanity and corruption. Or... C.H. Spurgeon. He says, There are many persons who can glide along like a train on rails without a solitary jerk. But I find that I have a vile nature to contend with. And spiritual life is a struggle with me. I have to fight from day to day with inbred corruption, coldness, deadness, barrenness. And if it were not for my Lord Jesus Christ, my heart would be as dry as the heart of the damned. And he's talking about his present experience. So a Christian, as they grow in grace, surprisingly also grows in their knowledge of their sin. Uh, Jack Miller used to talk about a grace vortex. The moment you come to Christ, necessarily... You see God's holiness and you see your sin and you see that Christ is the only one who is able to bridge the gap between your sin and God's holiness. And so you flee to Christ. But as you grow in Christ, you learn more about God's holiness, more about your sin. And what happens is you see yourself as a bigger sinner, but Christ is magnified. Because you see just how completely He is able to forgive all your sins, even those sins that were so deep that you didn't even know you had. And you continue growing as a Christian. And you begin seeing even more and more of your sins. You see more and more of God's glory. And you see more and more of Christ's grace because His grace is able, it it does, from the depths of your sin to the glory of God's holiness, is able to cover over that entire distance. You know, we like to think that the longer we become, the longer we're Christians, the more perfect we become. The gospel says 
the longer we're Christians, the more sinful we realize we are. And so Paul concludes our passage in verse 16. He says, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in Him for eternal life. In other words, Paul began holding himself up as an example to those Ephesian Christians, saying, look at me. I'm a teacher approved by God, but not because of the way I am able to teach you some esoteric teaching about genealogies and, and, the, and the law. Rather, I'm approved by God because Jesus Christ has poured His grace in me, has given me mercy. And now here He is as an example for us. As we look at Paul, as we look at him saying that he is the foremost of sinners, even as he neared the end of his life, he's an example of patience for us. Because we struggle with sin. Where are you in your life? I trust, in fact I hope, that you've never reached the place where you have it all together. And you don't need Christ's grace in your life. I hope that you are in a place in your life where you are seeking for His grace, not only daily, but moment by moment. Because whether you know it or not, You need it. And He is in Niagara Falls of grace. And is so eager. And thrilled with delight to pour His grace into your life. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for the patience that You show us. Because we are not a people who will ever arrive until we arrive in Your presence, where all sin is um, put behind us in our day-to-day experience when we reach uh, glory in Your presence. Lord, I ask that You would encourage the downhearted with the Gospel. Lord, I pray that You would lift up with great joy all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ as we consider Your patience, as we consider Your grace, as we consider the Niagara Falls of grace that You are pouring into our life moment by moment through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.